0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of State of Sport Management. One thing I have always tried to maintain we're doing on an annual basis is we do two kind of annual recordings, and I guess they're both going to end up being Texas A&M University themed this year, as I always try to do one recording with Savon Foster, as he's going through his PhD experiences, he's giving us a good insight into year one, year two, and I think year three, or is this year four? I can't remember, but he is finishing up. I know he already has posted that he's got a new job and all that, so I'm excited to talk to him later this spring semester if he's willing. But the other one I do is obviously related to our, you could say highest, at least the NASA highest prestigious or most prestigious NASA award, and it's the Earl F. Ziegler Lecture Award. And I've been kind of waiting to do this one. We were hoping that maybe we'd get back in person or have to do it virtual. And lo and behold, I've decided we're going to pull the trigger now and bring in Marlene Dixon, who is our, I guess, our most recent Ziegler Lecture Award winner. And I guess the only person that's done her lecture speech virtually. So I guess she maybe has that kudos over everybody else. But Marlene, how is your day going today?
1: It's going great. It's a little chilly here in College Station, so it feels super
0: yeah, we don't have to talk about what constitutes as chili from a, a native Texan, <laughs> so we'll just move along to the next thing, uh, but um, I'm, I'm guessing a lot native of people, <laughs> oh, okay, well, someone that's been in Texas for a long time, <laughs> at least. but um, I want to give some background quickly, but for any of you that aren't familiar, aren't familiar with NASM itself, NASA has a number of awards, but the most pre- prestigious award is like a career accumulation award is this Earl F. Ziegler lecture award winner. So the description listed for that kind of says most prestigious NASA award and may only be bestowed on an individual once over the course of their career. And it's specifically um, featuring a scholarly lecture provided by the award recipient, and it's delivered annually at the NASA conference or virtually, obviously, if we've had during the COVID pandemic, and it's also printed in the Journal of Sport Management. And while we're going through this, if you want, you can even pause or read through at the same time. But if you go on Journal of Sport Management's website right now, you'll see Dr. Dixon's paper is up and it's, as far as I can tell, it's open access. So anyone that can look at it, even if you don't have a subscription, even if your institution doesn't have a subscription, and kind of go from there. But so kind of giving all that background, um, we're going to kind of dive in and talk to Marlene about her Ziegler speech. I think this is going to be especially important because usually it's during NASA when you're able to attend and there's this great sense of excitement in the room as people are kind of listening to these world-renowned researchers talking about their career and what they want to take away and the message they want to portray. And Marlene had to do hers through Zoom. So maybe we should have gotten like a sponsorship opportunity there, but um, there's kind of this long culmination. So Marlene, kind of take us through that. Of You've had some time since obviously you were awarded, or you were told that you had won the Ziegler Award and giving your speech like What was that process like as you were kind of running through your head of what was going to be your topic? What was going to be your direction?
1: Yeah, I guess it was kind of funny because I found out in November or December of, uh, I guess that'd be 2019. um, And you kind of gear up and you're thinking about what you want to do. And then pandemic hits. And um, there was a bit of time there in... March, April, where everybody's thinking about: Is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen? What's the best way to deal with this? And had some conversations with Bob here at the time about what did we think was best and what you know. Um, my kids were monumentally disappointed because we were supposed to go to San Diego and hang out at the beach, and everybody was going to come, and and so there was a you know pretty big sense of disappointment there, and. I remember you know, Exec decided, let's cancel the conference. Let's go ahead and push these forward a year. And in that time frame, I think my head was really around, you know, kind of what are the big five or six lessons I've learned um, in a career or what are the big five or six kinds of takeaways that um, I've come f- away with in my research? And oh, different analogies and different pictures and word pictures that I walked through. But uh, over the summer and through the next fall, none of those things were just popping off the page to me. Um, And I couldn't figure out what exactly uh, I wanted to say. And, and then probably around January of 20, I don't even know what that is now 2021. (laughs) um, Everything sort of fell together and, I just thought of um, as I talked with people and this is sort of funny, I said, you know, I'm going to do something super academic-y and um, my sort of inner circle of board of directors were like, ew, that's that's so not what we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear more of your heart. Um, And I'll have to say it's uh, to do a talk I guess like I ended up with was a bit scary in the sense of um, a little more heartfelt and a little more vulnerable. And so uh, that's really more what I wrestled with is, do I really wanna do this kind of talk more so than exactly what it was? And uh, as I had read Tim Keller's book and he mentioned the Leaf by Niggle, um book that I talk about in the speech that just set home with me and I thought there's this has to be a part because this is just so sitting with me right now and it's such a beautiful picture of um you know doing your work right in the process and of faithfulness that um even through all of the iterations of putting it together it uh that part stayed consistent um, and then, sometime again around that time, January, February, my colleagues here at AM said, This is way no fun that you are going to do this virtually. We have to at least do something. And it looks like it's possible that um, we could have at least some semblance of a gathering here. And so, we did actually get to do this talk live here at AM uh, at the end of April um and colleagues from here and a few others uh joined us here so that part was fun and we all went for barbecue after and uh and so I really enjoyed that opportunity to do it live and then um we we basically just recorded it at that point as you can see it and edited it and it's on uh it's on YouTube I think somewhere with all you know and uh And so then we just ended up playing it uh, for NASA, which for me was great because all the angst was done uh, the one time in April and I didn't have to gear up all again uh, to do it again. So I guess that's the process.
0: Well, and I think some of the challenge about even writing something like this is academic articles are written in a similar tone and you can build in those structures where this is like, I've never written anything like this, or if you have, it's been a long time or it doesn't happen very often. I mean, how did you even kind of get your footing on writing style or topics? Like, I mean, did you talk to other folks? Did you read other Ziegler lecture like papers?
1: Definitely. Oh man. I went back and read a whole bunch. Right. Uh, I read Bonas again. I read Dan Mahoney's. I read Lawrence's. I read Chris's. I read, uh, Janet's, uh, I read Mary Hum's, um, and it's, uh, you know, and some that were way back. And as I noticed all of those, um, I realized they generally are sort of a charge to the field and pretty heartfelt of what people really hoped um, the field would think about, that our membership would think about. And not so much um, citing, you know, some academic path, I guess. And so that also that actually gave me a lot of um, confidence that I was on the right track of what I wanted to say.
0: And on there, maybe someday I should we should build a definitive order of best and worst Ziegler speeches because I always laugh at something. I feel like people have like a couple in the head, but then you forget about some of the others and then you read through them and they're all really good. And then it's like tough to decide or also understand some of these are so era specific about, especially the early ones are really talking about sport management and it's infancy and how Mm -hmm. we can really Mm -hmm. establish ourselves. I think Chalup kind of capped Mm -hmm. that. And now we're really going to this new direction of um, Ziegler speeches that I think are providing a lot more variety or diversity for the, for the Mm -hmm. winner to kind of choose a direction.
1: Yeah. Boy, I'd hate to ever rank them. I and they they speak so differently to different people at their career stage and and their style. And if you uh if you ever rank them, Matt, please don't put me on that committee because I would I would hate to have to rank them.
0: <laughs> well, see the key is I'll just rank them and then I'll just say this is Marlene Dixon's list. And then that <laughs> way nothing I have to worry about. <laughs> um so I know it's really tough, but I think it'd be good to like, how would you boil down your, because we're going to include a link within this posting of showing the full Ziggler speech. I think it's going to be important for people to watch it. But I mean, what would you say is like your one to three minute, like elevator pitch on the topic and direction that you took for the listeners out there, especially for people that maybe are just listening this casually and don't have a strong connection yet of what would you say is kind of your big theme takeaway from your speech?
1: Well, I guess the, <clears throat> the core elements are already there. I mean, it's a little five-point speech, uh, but essentially just to think about that everyone has their own career path and their own career journey, and we have to kind of come into that for ourselves. And I think in the academic world in particular, there's, um, there's so much judgment in the sense of you're always being evaluated. You're always being evaluated in your teaching, in your writing, in your thinking, in your publications, in your impact factor. And I think it makes it difficult for people to really walk the path that is authentic to them because somebody's always saying what they should do and what they should do and how they should do it. And this will be good for your Vita and all the things. Um, And so my hope was just to encourage people that uh, to do the work that matters to them and that their work does matter and that they don't have to pursue something different just because someone said that's what they should do. They can pursue what's authentic and right in front of them and that they can have the courage to walk the career path that's for them and to be able to do it over the long haul.
0: And this is obviously coming from a reader and not from you, but, for me as the reader, it I think you hit that right in the head of everything kind of circles around the authenticity piece to me, because even the other categories of lifelong learner work, life balance, like faithfulness, all those kind of tie to me in the things that are important to you. And what doesn't mean that they aren't going to be important to other people, but it's kind of that authenticity to me, it's kind of the root of the centralized thesis without that of, these things became or were important to you entering into the process and therefore they kind of helped you progress and continually improving and exceeding whatever your career goals were achieving those career goals kind of moving forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, people get into academia because they have something that's interesting to them. Um, Otherwise they would go work for someone else. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I think that has been also part of my own career path and also one that I've watched over and over and over again with doc students and over and over and over again with uh, younger faculty walking the same path I did that at some point you have to come into your own voice and find your own academic voice and the, your own things that you wanna say um, and then having the courage to say them and and to own it and to walk it out is, is super, super important.
0: Yeah. The mentoring sections really connected me with the podcast episodes I did with like, with Dr. Neff Walker and Dr. Nicole Meldon, which we talked a little bit about like mentoring, advising, also doing research with like undergrad and grad students, which requires some level of mentoring and advising within that disorganically. But maybe it just speaks to me as well as being someone that's going to be going up for tenure in the not so distant future and that there will be more and more opportunities for mentoring. And it -hmm. does seem daunting to do that for some reason, as even though I was an advisor for seven years, it feels different mentoring faculty. Um, And maybe that's just more of the title I'm providing people and the privileges related to that. But it's like with someone like you that I respect is maybe the best or one of the best mentors in the field that it was really refreshing to read about that. It's really felt like a guide, like a handbook. It's like, Hey, here's some mentoring. <laughs> here's some mentoring guidance for everyone that would be good to kind of follow. But, I, and I kind of tie that together. I mean, did you write this with the ex- like expectation that maybe younger folks will be thinking about this? Cause that was a message I took, but I don't know if that was a position of just who I am reading this like currently. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a good question. I guess I don't uh, see it as a tutorial um, in that regard, but I can only write from what I know. And I suppose at some level, I feel like those were things that people shared or did with me. And so I'm just passing them along. And I guess at some level, you hope that whatever has been some of your path, excuse me, that people along the way would pick up on and resonate with or empathize with something that has been important to you, that your life path isn't so, uh, to use a Matt Hummel word, truly unique, that, uh, <laughs> uh, that it would, um, you know, my path is not so unique that what I have experienced uh, would not be helpful to others. So I, if, I feel like if I share what's been helpful to me, most likely somewhere along the way that's going to resonate with someone else. Um, And it is interesting because I don't know that I would have said, I set out to be a mentor. It just sort of happened. And I think that goes back a little bit to the authenticity is uh, I don't try to mentor people. Um, We just build relationships with the people that are right in front of us and whatever that ends up looking like, um, has a little bit to do with career stage. So if you're a young faculty member and you have doc students, then you mentor them. If you're at a, a non-doctoral type of university and you have undergrads, you mentor them. If you end up in sort of administrative position, naturally you have faculty, so you mentor them. So it kind of um, just sort of happens along the way as your career path grows.
0: And I think the last section i want to talk about because i think it was interesting to me as a lifelong learner when i did advising we i had a lot i had an adult program and so all of our students were essentially life these like adult students non-traditional students lifelong learners and i think a lot of that sticks out to me in the sense of we do root a lot of learning with education so now we aren't taking classes but we're teaching classes and there is such a learning process going through that even Because we're going to talk about later, even if you switch institutions, even just basic institutional knowledge, or it's just you're getting more and more responsibilities, stuff like that.
1: Oh, wow. I have learned so much in the last uh, two years in particular, sitting in this new sort of division chair role. Um, And it's not book knowledge. It is life knowledge. And, you know, (laughs) like you said, it's really fun and challenging because it's literally everything from um, what are salary grades and, and what are HR processes for people being absent and those kinds of things all the way to how do you deal with um, student or faculty grievances? How do you deal with um, really hard things uh, of just life of, you know, parents dying or, um, good things of you know faculty having kids and and all of the things that come along with life. I, uh, yeah, lifelong learning um, looks different right now. It is not book learning, but. It is um, super challenging and also really super rewarding and fun.
0: And then, I mean, are the the rumors true? Is there some secret Ziegler meeting that happens at every NASA where you you guys just exchange methodological jokes and talk about theoretical frameworks or?
1: I could neither confirm nor deny the existence of such meeting (laughs) without the secretary's approval.
0: I like to think that there's some secret door that opens in a hall that doesn't look like a door and suddenly (laughs) it's a room filled with candles and all these people with huge followings. And like your story in your little Ziggler speech about someone, oh my God, Dixon the researcher.
1: (laughs) When you win the Zig, then you can find out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to talk a little bit about career because I do love that Ziggler is like this career culminating experience. I think we don't spend enough time talking about career stuff because your speech is kind of, is like this one opportunity to give your moment to the, to the, I don't know what I want to call it, to the, to the assembly, but kind of looking through your CV. I love that you're like a Trinity university grad. Like we aren't, this isn't some like huge, like Harvard or like, even though you did go to Texas for your master's, like it's kind of cool that there's like this little, I think there's quite a few sport management folks that have gone to smaller D1 or D2, D3 NAIA schools, But um, so you did Trinity and San Antonio, and then you went to University of Texas for your master's, and then you went all the way up north to Columbus, Ohio. So like, (laughs) what about all those stops there?
1: Mm. You know, what's funny is uh, when I was graduating from high school, I really thought I wanted to go to some giant, you know, R1 type of university, and I had an English teacher who Um, Pulled me aside one day and said, oh, for the love of God, please do not go, you know, to CU (laughs) or CSU or um, I was in love with the University of Texas at that point, because it was Jody Conrad and the whole national championship and. um, Oh, yeah. And she really talked to me about smaller liberal arts schools like Trinity, um, which is a amazing institution and only keeps getting better Um, but what I learned there I learned how to think and I really learned how to write I I mean that's what that's the grounding of my writing is because not only do you have these small classes um, you know I had a few lectures that were 100 or 150 in chemistry and biology kind of labs but most of my classes were really small 25 to 30 and in fact you had these freshman writing seminars that were 10 students and you had a peer mentor and you wrote 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 and you rewrote and you wrote and um that's really what I would attribute the basis of you know being able to write and to to put together an argument is there um and then I was coaching at the time I went to University of Texas. And I was up at Southwestern in Georgetown and, and sort of did that on the side. And it was such a great experience um, because I was coaching and my head coach was very open to you know letting me uh slip away a couple nights a week to uh go to classes. Most of our classes there were at night, and it was a fabulous faculty. It was uh, Janet Fink was there at the time and Harold Raymer was there at the time and Maureen Fitzgerald, Jan Todd. And um, even then I, I was really going to go coaching. I mean, I was, I had my heart set. I had my headset on being a head coach and just things didn't fall in place with that. And it just didn't make sense with um, what Stuart and I were thinking together as a couple for a family Um, And those guys there, uh, Janet and Maureen and Harold, were so um, kind and so helpful and really suggested to me, uh, if you're going to, you know, thinking about doing a PhD, you should really go to Ohio State and do it right. And you should go work with Donna. And uh, so that was pretty awesome. Um, And then, you know, Donna happened to have a GA spot open. So I headed up there and I was actually the head of the coaching track, um, when I was there and supervised coaching internships and taught coaching classes and taught coaching basketball. I taught coaching internships or coaching effectiveness. I think it was like a, and in fact, even at that time, I really thought I would go back into coaching. Um, and I had a head coaching, um, position in my hands, uh, leaving Ohio state and oh, wow. I decided not to go that route and ended up at rice in Houston. So I guess the rest is history.
0: <laughs> and so I think you just briefly, you did briefly talk about this, but I mean, who are your classmates there at Ohio state for a time? Like, cause that had to be an incredibly solid group during that era.
1: Oh yeah. That was, that was a cool group. Um, you know, a little bit ahead of us were, Obviously, Jenny was um, on her way out as I was on my way in. But just ahead of me, um, Alan Geist and Corinne Deprano, Carla Costa, and Brian Turner and uh, Chris Greenwell. And then in in our classes, uh, Harry Kwan and John Singer, um, and then George was in the class after us. And so, yeah, it was a great group. and, you know, Uh, it was just so fun to have seminars together and really talk through things and push each other. And also we took most of our method classes together. So that was really fun too. And met at Applebee's afterwards, after (laughs) the famed John Miller, um, research methods classes, and we'd go to Applebee's and have half price appetizers. So get that giant pile of nachos for five bucks and then split it with three people. It was a grad student's dream.
0: <laughs> oh man. See, now it's just funny to think, imagine walking into an Applebee's and seeing all these future full professors and <laughs> prestigious <laughs> academics in there just sharing a nachos for five bucks. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, kind of looking through positions you've been, I mean, you've made quite a few stops in Texas, which is like at really well-known universities, you are at Rice for three years as lecturer. I mean, what was that like? Is that's not a program. I think that, um, I'm too familiar with, I wouldn't say it's like one of the really well-known programs it doesn't mean that they don't have a good program.
1: It was great. Uh, and again, I think I probably, I would say that that was my big, um, teaching internship, uh, learned a lot, I taught a diff- bunch of different classes and. Uh, with a a group of faculty who gave us a lot of autonomy Um, and John Elliott and I and and Jimmy Dish would sit around and figure out who was gonna teach what and draw straws and (laughs) um, just learned a lot about that. And I really loved working with undergrads and the students there are super bright and super challenging. And so it was kind of like being right back at Trinity People that didn't take what you had to say for granted. And I remember uh, 9 11 happened when I was at Rice, and that was a big um, opportunity for me to learn how to see students as people and to really um, start seeing how you're in a position of really caring for them. You're not just a teacher that they see once a week, you're in a position of really caring for them and walking through 9-11 with that crew, uh, was also formative in that way.
0: That would be such an interesting change because especially thinking about you were at Texas for your master's Ohio state for your doctorate and then going to a rice, a small, like private school that probably felt really different.
1: Yeah. In some ways, although, um, really, it, it felt like home. It felt like being back at Trinity. It felt like being back at Southwestern. And I was very comfortable there. In fact, I had, I could have seen myself be there a really long time. Um, and Clark Happenstall came and had a really lot of great ideas about building the internships and building it as a, you know, very practically oriented program. And I think it still is that, and it's still thriving under his leadership. And um kind of a niche uh of course but a really really solid program and I was really thankful for the time there to get to learn to teach without lots of um, pressure to publish
0: and then I mean so then you end up leaving Rice and going to Texas so this is kind of your I mean this is your alma mater you were there for a while there was quite a few great faculty there I mean tell us about that experience
1: (laughs) it was amazing um Texas was my dream job Uh, and my husband was an athlete at Texas and we felt that, you know, University of Texas was kind of our home. And so obviously, yeah, that was a dream and uh, seemed pretty out of reach. Uh, But I had kind of gotten to know Chris and Lawrence in the time I was at Rice and they were really helpful to me of helping me sort of refine my research. And I spent some time every couple months going up there and just talking research with them. And they were so great to me and uh, applied for the job as a long shot. I'm pretty sure I was like the third candidate was the third choice. They offered (laughs) it seriously, like you laugh, but they offered it to two other people before they offered it to me. They were really looking for an associate and I guess they couldn't come to terms. So sometime around Memorial Day right it's the late uh, of you, you apply for these things in oh, yeah. November and ride it out sometime in late May uh, John Ivey who was the department head at the time called me kind of like well I don't have anybody else do you want it <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: oh, and legit and I was like um how much does you know, how much does it pay? And he's like, $50,000. I'm like, yes, $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> Man. And I had, we just thought we had hit the jackpot. I was so thrilled to head up there and so scared. Um, <clears throat> such a different position. And again, you know, you've got Chris and Lawrence are there and, and Maureen Fitzgerald's still there and Jan Todd and, folks who are really just crushing it and you're going, oh my goodness, I've really, uh, bit into a giant slice of pizza on this one. Um, but my husband is so incredible and he was excited to go back and, uh, we are excited to be back closer to his family. And it just, uh, those guys mentored me, um, unbelievably, um, Lawrence would, uh, we always laughed because we. I'd talk with Lawrence about my ideas and things like that, you know, and he'd blow them up into these like twenty-year research agendas, and then I'd sit with Chris and we'd make them more practical. And Maureen was uh, what called the. Uh, I called her my mind sweeper. She was my political mind sweeper and helped me stay out of any kind of messes that I would get in politically, but. I think the biggest thing um, that Chris and Lawrence did for me there was really to help me think about research questions and big picture things I would like to say with my work and not just chasing projects. And, and I hadn't made that transition yet. So they were really, really helpful in doing
0: that. So you're there, you get tenure in 2010. So here's the first surprise fun podcast question. What'd you do? How did you celebrate getting tenure?
1: Well, here's the irony of tenure. I was actually in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A when I got the call. John Ivey was still the chair. John Ivey called me on like a Friday afternoon. I'm in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. He's like, hey, I just want to let you know your tenure is approved. It's official. I don't know, maybe I ordered a milkshake. <laughs> um, I do think we actually all went out to dinner a couple of weeks later, or something like that. But um, it wasn't—it uh, was not the monumental landmark that um, maybe we make it out to be.
0: It is. I think now everything comes through email. Like you'd get a formal letter, so it's kind of cool in some ways, and also not as tantalizing just to get a phone call and say hey you got tenure just letting you know like have a good day <laughs> yeah
1: not to discount it right but yeah. i do at least remember where i was
0: yeah i would say definitely was a vivid <laughs> memory <laughs> so then you end up leaving texas at 2013 and going to troy so kind of what was that that transition and that position at troy like that uh,
1: was cool um uh, Damon Andrew was building that program there at the time and had a vision for, you know, really enhancing the PhD program. And uh, he called me one day and he said, "I have an idea for you." And I'm like, "Okay, great." You know, if Damon Andrew calls you and has an idea. He better, you know, put your seatbelt on because he has big picture ideas. So uh, we just talked through, and he's like, "How would you like to?" build a PhD program from your living room and we have Chella on board and, you know, we'd love to have you come on and, and help us do that. And so, you know, that's really how that came about. Um, and <clears throat> at the time I lived about, it was about an hour to an hour and a half drive from Texas. And I had been doing that commute for about eight years with three kids and, so
0: wait, wait, wait. So it was taking you an hour, an hour and a half to get to campus. Yes, each day. Where were well, you living? So
1: in Burnet, Texas. I'll
0: have to look that one up. I'm not. It, you'll have
1: to look that one up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a, you know, it was a long commute, and oh, it was very, very attractive um, to be able to disconnect from that and work from home and spend some time with my. Kids who were, you know, I can't remember exact ages at the time, but elementary, preschool and elementary, and it was um, a fabulous opportunity to for work life balance um, for sure, and to do you know meaningful work, and continue to be able to build a PhD program and and have stellar doc students. Uh, Arden Anderson joined me at Troy. You know when I first got there, and it was so great to get to do that and to be working from home too.
0: For the listeners, I did look up Burnet, Texas. Yeah, you're way up like northwest, up by like past Horseshoe Bay and everything. Yes, sir. That was a drive, and that's a small town. <laughs> <laughs> we won't. I'm not going to slow the podcast down because someday I'll ask about why Burnet, Texas. But um, so. You're at Troy, you're there for a handful of years, and then you decide to make the transition to Texas A&M, which is, I love that connection of like Texas being your dream job, and now you're going to work for their, these hated rivals, sport rivalry. I mean, (laughs) so what was it like transitioning to there in 2016?
1: Yeah, Um, tough in some ways, um, but i would always been close to the program here because obviously George was here, and John was here, and Greg Bennett was here, and, and um, I knew them from way back and had walked in parallel, and so in terms of that, in terms of knowing the people here and wanting to be somewhere with another great group of faculty, um, Matt Walker was the chair at the time, and so just, you know, to be able to join a vibrant faculty there, and one of the difficulties, I think, Uh, Even though I love Troy, one of the hard things was being online, um, it's hard to feel like you're a part. And you see, you're living in this online world, but there's still this whole thing going on on campus. And in fact, my doc students were on campus in Alabama, and I'm, you know, just online. And so even though I think it was a good trial, I think it was fun to kind of build and start. I felt like going back was even better and the opportunity to not have a commute and go back to a major research institution. Um, it just felt right. And it was a, it was a good position and a good offer and it, uh, from a family perspective, it was pretty funny because, um, of course my husband was like, what, Uh, (laughs) but I'll never forget my son. My oldest son, Justin was in eighth grade and we were talking about it and he goes, mom, the only worst place on the whole planet. I think I could think of living is Norman, Oklahoma. (laughs) 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 And it was a really, really hard move. They, uh, Um, it was a hard transition for them. They were, you know, elementary, middle school, and they didn't, they liked our little small town and it was really hard on them, which made it really hard on me. Um, but over the time that we've been here, we've really grown to love the people here. Um, so it's been a good spot.
0: And so it's kind of funny that that job was a harder sell at home. Yes. (laughs) It was like, uh, business wise.
1: Yeah. Oh, it was a no brainer business wise, but telling my bleed orange children, uh, that we're moving to Aggieland was not an easy sell.
0: Um, and to kind of keep things moving along, I mean, what's the best advice you've ever received in the field? Like whether from a mentor, a colleague, even a student, like, is there something that sticks out to you that you just think oh, that was really well-timed or just well-said?
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think there's a couple of those that stick out and I might've even put this one in my speech. I think <clears throat> one of the things that Donna always talked about is that it's a marathon, not a sprint. She told me that a lot. Donna Pastori is Marlene. You don't have to do every project in the next month. Um, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I think, uh, so from a long-term um, I also remember Janet Fink telling me a lot about just keep your head down and do your work. And when you show up at, you know, when especially young faculty show up at Texas, there's lots of dynamics, lots of things going on. She just said, just keep your head down and do your own work and uh, everything will take care of itself. So I think that was good. And um, I also remember a really good one from Chela. Um, Chella always said that your dissertation is your first work, not your best work. And you actually should look back on your dissertation and chuckle. Um, But we set it up as this big giant thing that you notch, but it's really just your first work. And so, of course, um, you're going to make mistakes. And of course, you would hope that your work would grow from there, uh, that it would be just your first work, not your
0: best work. Is there any like projects, experiences, services that you're especially proud of? Um, And you can decide how what's meaningful to you, whether that means it's been cited a lot or if it's just meant a lot to you personally, but anything that sticks out?
1: Yeah, there's a couple along the way that I think have been pet projects, I suppose. Obviously, the early work with Jenny in work-life balance was just so much fun because We ended up doing, I don't know, six or seven papers together, but more so that we lived it and we were right in the thick of it. And, uh, you know, we'd go to these conferences and with kids in tow and we're (laughs) one, I think it was a NAS conference and she and I were presenting and I can't remember exactly. One of us was pregnant and the other one had a baby in the stroller as part of the presentation. So obviously that work is is foundational, uh, near and dear to my heart. It's and obviously something we're still working on and still asking questions around. So that's foundational. I think the work with um, Stacey Warner in the sense of community stuff has been so uh, impactful to me. Um, maybe not so much because it, um, I'm not still like formally looking at sense of community in the sense, but more so because it's become like integrated into the very fabric of what I think about and do. And I think about um, uh, probably the third one is is our Kenya project has been so important. But how things about sense of community came to inform the design of that project and the, the program there how sense of the community really um, resonates with uh, basketball coaching and the club that we have and and how we design leadership opportunities and involvement for people and those kinds of things. And then also even in the leadership. So that's probably a second one. And then the third one is is, um, our project in Nairobi with a group there called Highway of Hope and just being able to walk alongside them That really started in around 2016, just in thinking stages. And so now five years later to watch that program grow to be at uh, five different schools in Kibera and, you know, almost 100 kids and just really, really exciting. And really, my hands are off it at this point. I mean, it's there. It was their baby. And it is their baby. And I think the fun part for me has been just to walk alongside them for a short period of time and maybe get to speak into that a little bit and help them make it better or more what they wanted it to be, to build some capacity. And, you know, they started it, they're running it. It's awesome. And now I get to just sit back and watch them soar. It's been really, really cool.
0: Nice. Yeah, those are four pretty awesome projects there. So Marlene, it's a good question about like, what are we going to do going forward? You've accomplished so much. Um, you have countless publications, people, you're really well known. You've got the Ziegler Award winning, um, or you've won the Ziegler Award. You've got these international projects that have kind of taken off. But in the other sense, you also have quite a bit of titles and positions and responsibilities that are probably requiring a lot of your day to day time. I mean, what are you envisioning that you're going to want to accomplish or going to be doing in the forthcoming years?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because it's so funny. Like I, uh, it's never been about positions or publications or anything. It's really just been about living life and doing the things that are right in front of me. So I think that's partly why that leaf by um analogy is so Resonate so strongly with me because I feel like my whole life I've just painted the leaves that are in front of me. And so I don't really know exactly what's on the horizon, um, but uh, I think that's really it is uh, whatever comes. And I think I'll know when I know. Um, And there'll be plenty of leaves right in front of me to paint, whether those are faculty members or more doc students or whatever that ends up looking like.
0: What Dr. Dixon is saying is she has an incredible amount of free time. And if anyone has any ideas <laughs> on what she needs to accomplish, send it her way. She is willing to help and, and just looking looking for projects to take on.
1: That's it. <laughs> Captured that well. Um,
0: yeah. I think I'm going to finish you with this one with the last fun podcast question of who was the first faculty member you ever met that wasn't at like a PhD or it wasn't at Ohio State that when you met, you're like, oh, my gosh, like that is whoever, because it resonates to me of in your Ziegler lecture, you talked about the students seeing you and saying, Oh man, you're Dixon, the researcher. Like who is that for you? um, Besides the faculty that you interacted with for your courses. Mm.
1: Wow. Yeah. There's a couple of those two Uh, for sure. Wendy Frisbee uh, is someone who I really looked up to and, and really, um, I remember having she came to University of Texas and gave a big talk uh, and I was still just a baby, baby assistant there and we got to have lunch together and had such a fabulous chat and I was just saying at the time she was doing all this amazing work. um, This you know participatory action research. And I was like, Oh, Wendy, I want to do what you're doing. This is so amazing. And, (laughs) and, uh, she's like, yeah, but Marlene, the reality of doing that at this point in your life is, is really tough because, uh, your kids are young. And this is, I mean, the kind of work we're doing, we're meeting in the evenings, uh, weeknights and weekends. And I just don't know that this would be super realistic for you. And, you know, 10 years from now, when your brain is not like three blocks back, uh, it'll be a fabulous time for you to engage in this kind of work. So, you know, stay the course. And it was such great encouragement And uh, I think another big sort of hero in the field for me is Annalise Knoppers. Um, and, uh, I remember the first time I actually got to meet her in person. I had obviously read her work in, uh, just this whole thinking about the way coaching was structured, and the taken for granted assumptions. And I read everything she published. And I think I finally got to meet her in Seattle, at NASA in Seattle. What was that? 2012 or something. And um, had just a uh, really really nice visit with her too. So. I think those are a couple who have been super influential in uh, over the years in addition to all the folks i work with and whatever
0: well no 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 those don't count we're talking about yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so those are two great names i've heard those names in a while but um i'm dating myself no 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 <laughs> no, no, no no um but i'm going to add one last question this one's simple of Let's say you have control of NASA. You can put NASA in any city and we'll say 2025 and we'll assume that there's no COVID issues. So you get to pick the city that NASA's at. So where would you choose? NASM in
1: 2025. Let's go to Vail.
0: No. In June, or are you going to also fiddle with the date and try to do like a, a January NASA?
1: <laughs> no Vale in the summer is fabulous let's do uh late June in Vale
0: Colorado all right you've heard it here first folks so in the secret Ziegler meeting this might get brought up but <laughs> <laughs> awesome well, I just want to thank Dr. Dixon for joining us I think this was a great conversation and we we appreciate everything you do for our field
1: you're so welcome thanks Matt
0: Well, thanks everybody for joining us for this episode of State of Sport Management. We hope you join us for the next one.